I'm TL, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week at Mass, we say those words, I believe, but our belief has implications on the way we live our life the rest of the week. We explore those implications together right here on Outside the Walls. Well, we're almost there, but we're not yet. It's still Advent. Uh, Tomorrow we celebrate the third Sunday in the season of Advent, but Christmas is coming close. We've just now uh, entered the second half of the season of Advent. Of course, the first two weeks we spend looking at the end of all days. All of the readings are taking us to the eschaton, to that moment of of Christ's return uh, that we still long for. We can participate in that longing as we get a lot of the readings from the prophets uh, prophesying the redemption of all mankind. And we still are sitting in between uh, the coming of Christ and, and the the act of redemption through the cross of Christ and waiting for still that moment when all of creation is, is set free and redeemed and uh, released from the curse. So here we are, and things are now turning in our readings uh, very clearly to the Incarnation that God is going to come and be with us, Emmanuel, right? That God is with us in the midst of uh, our sojourn on this earth. And this shift is worth noting. It's very important that we catch this shift because the promise is that God would come and be with us, not that he would come and be with us and live a while and then go away and then come back but that he would come and he would be with us. And I think a lot of times we anticipate or we expect that um, the difficulties of this life are things that we just have to face and that one day when we die, because we've been saved, that we'll go and we'll experience the beatific vision and then everything will be okay. Then we'll be with God. And, And that's not the promise that was fulfilled at Christmas. Rather, the promise was that God would come and dwell with us, and we would be his people and he would be our God. Uh, there was no talk of, of God departing again. Rather, God was coming to be with us. In fact, when uh, in the book of John, when the evangelist talks about eternal life, he's not referring to something that happens after we die. He's not referring to, we're going to live out this life and then we'll enter into eternal life. Rather, eternal life is something that begins right now, something that we begin to experience by virtue of the fact that we have been redeemed and reconciled to God the Father, and that that eternal life, that abundant life, begins just at this moment and then continues into eternity. And it's very important for us as we go through this life and we experience the difficulties and the pains and the oppressions of this life that we realize that we are not alone, that we've not been somehow abandoned by God and then one day he's going to come back, right? Rather, Jesus specifically and explicitly said to his apostles, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will send my Holy Spirit, right? And he even uh, later in the book of John says, "It's, it's better for you that I go away because if I don't go, the comforter won't come. So here we have Christ in a very specific place and location, limited by, uh, by the body. And when he ascends into heaven and sends the Holy Spirit, 
Now his presence is with us everywhere. His presence is with us in all of the altars all around uh, the world. His presence is in the tabernacle waiting for us. Uh, He is now truly Emmanuel, God with us, and I will dwell with them and they will be my people and I will be their God. And this has very specific implications for us. It means that God's kingdom is not far away from us, but it's right here. God's kingdom is meant to be here on earth as it is in heaven today, not at the end of all time. It means for you and I that we have a place in that kingdom today and not at the end of all time. It means that he longs for us to be sanctified and holy and and saintly now, at this moment, and not after we have passed away and gone through purgatory. He has a call for us to live out a life of union with him now, and not merely something to be delayed and look forward to and pie in the sky uh, after, after all of the difficulty of life, something to look forward to because of what we suffered here. No, God, God's desire for us is that we be reunited with him right now, living the life of sanctity right now, bringing about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven right now. And so as we look at the world around us and we see things in a bit of turmoil, and maybe you don't even have to look very far. Maybe you look to your own family. Maybe you look to your own uh, uh, circumstances within yourself. Maybe you don't have to go to anyone else at all. If you look around and you see all of those things that seem broken in the world, this is what Advent is for, for us to take a look at those places and invite the God of the universe to come and be Emmanuel, God with us, God with me right here in this situation, not something to put off and plan and a five-year plan of how we're going to overcome it but something to invite the God of the universe into at this moment, in this Advent season, that the incarnation of Christ, where he deigned to be born into the lowliest state, that he would also do the same for us here and now, today. That he would enter into the, the, the places of our heart, of our life, that may feel a little bit like a manger and a stable. And that he would be born into those places, invited into those places, so that he would bring his kingdom, his rule and reign, here in our lives on this earth as it is in heaven. And when he does that, he makes us participants in his great mission. We're going to talk about that today as we talk with Dr. John Cavadini of the McGrath Institute for Church Life about our responsibility to the church how you and I, God has called to be leaders as he has called us to be saints. It's going to be a great conversation, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. 
And today we are exploring a little bit, pushing the edges, uh, which is what theology does. Theology always pushes the edges to see what what really we can know about God and, and whether or not the things that we have assumed uh, can really be held up as correct. Uh, oftentimes the, the theologian gets maybe in trouble with uh, the people of uh, of faith because they make us uncomfortable. Things go a little bit further than we might uh, otherwise expect. But being a, a, a faith that is based on tradition, we have um, maybe some edges that we have to push. We've got to discern the difference between sacred tradition that was handed down to us and sometimes those sacred cows that we hold on to just because it's the way things have always been. And Theology helps us do that. We're talking today uh, with Dr. John Cavadini, who's the director of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. You've heard that uh, that that location, that name here on the show several times because I'm a, such a fan of their work. Uh, we've talked <laughs> with, with several folks from there, from uh, everyone from uh, Dr. Timothy O'Malley to Dr. Leonard DeLorenzo. Uh, and, and many more. And Dr. Cavadini, I'm so glad to have you on the show again today. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. So you have this conference coming up in March, March 4th through 6th, that is just very intriguing to me because it's asking, uh, uh, I think, a question that we don't ask uh, often enough. And that is, as a layperson, which I, I am one, as a layperson, what is my role and my responsibility and the leadership of the church. Uh, and, and I think that this is a, a topic that makes people uncomfortable because uh, some people, when they think of leadership in the church, can't get beyond the idea of hierarchical leadership or of Episcopal leadership. And so anytime they talk about lay people leading the church, they jump immediately to ecclesial roles. And yet Pope Benedict had this phrase, this that, that you talk about in the introduction to the conference, that we are co-responsible for the church. So maybe explore a little bit about what are the bounds of this inquiry uh, that you and, and your fellow conference speakers are going to be pushing on? Sure. Um, well, first of all, this phrase co-responsibility comes up at a speech that Pope Benedict gave to Catholic Action. It caught my attention because of the way in which he is explicitly distinguishes it from collaboration with the hierarchy. So he's thinking of something um, more than a situation where the hierarchy, you might say, lays out certain paths of action and or and lately people collaborate with, with them. Rather, it seems to be something a little bit more far-reaching where he says that instead we have to think of lay people as co-responsible for the being and the acting of the church. So that's what I, why I started thinking, well, that, that means that lay people in some ways have to be thought of as leaders in the church, not in a way, I'm not thinking of a way uh, and that infringes on the natural rights of governance, which, which belong to the hierarchy through holy orders. So I'm not thinking of any kind of diminution of the authority of the hierarchy or the leadership of the hierarchy. But what I'm thinking is that the word leadership can pertain to more than that in the church, it seems to me, without being in conflict with it. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's some of this that rightly belongs to us as lay people by virtue of, of the sacraments of initiation. By, by baptism, we too 
are baptized into the priest, prophet, and king roles uh, of Christ in a different way, in a different character than, than those who have received holy orders. And yet it is still incumbent upon us to live out and to act out those roles to which we were configured. Right. That's exactly right. Uh, and John Paul II <clears throat> pointed out, he's not the only one to have pointed it out, but he pointed out that because, that because the Second Vatican Council kind of recovered a, an emphasis or a, a renewed emphasis and a renewed, I think, clarity about the common priesthood of the baptized, that he, he says that in some ways it cr- created a kind of crisis of priestly identity for the ordained, because it seemed as though this was sort of a, somehow a zero-sum game mm-hmm. in which, well, if you, um, if you could be a priest just by your baptism, why would you then undertake something else? And that, that's partly because the priesthood of the baptized had been understood in some theological circles and ecclesial circles to be a participation in the priesthood of the ordained, which Vatican II clearly says it's not. It's a participation in the priesthood of Christ, and the participation, as you said, of the ordained in it is through another sacrament and is a is a different, uh, not just a different degree, but of a different order. His document, Pastoros Davo Vobis, tries to take up, I think, the way in which the um, priesthood of the ordained is according to Vatican II, ordered towards the priesthood of the baptized. So um, it mediates the the high priesthood of Christ in a unique way to the priesthood of the baptized in order to support and to to, um, nurture and to empower, you might say, the priesthood of the baptized. Mm -hmm. And so it it doesn't have to be a zero-sum thing. Right. And I know that um, also John Paul II used to wonder where were the great priest saints, priest saints of Vatican II. And I don't think he meant by that there weren't any priests after Vatican II who weren't who were saints. That's not the point. The point was like where were like there were priest saints like Charles Borromeo, say after after Trent, which were identified specifically with the reforms of Trent and exemplifying them. Where are the priests? who are identified specifically with the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. And I think, I think therefore, what, what um, the idea of co-responsibility asks us kind of to think about that question. What would that mean? I think it would mean for the priesthood, the, the, the priest saint, as it were, of Vatican II would be the one who figures out how to, um, how to not make it a zero-sum thing, but how to make the ordained priesthood sort of build up the leadership of the right. the appropriate leadership of the um, of the baptized. You know, we've heard a lot about clericalism uh, recently uh, as part of the the sexual abuse crisis that has rocked the church yet again. Uh, and 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 yet I think often when we think about lay leadership, uh, either we think, oh well, I can't do that because that's the priest's job. One, unless we're talking about the sacraments, that would be one example of clericalism. Or we think that by lay leadership, it means taking over those things which are uh, ordered towards and, and rightly belong to the ordained priesthood, the episcopacy or, or the presbytery, uh, in which case that's also kind of a reverse clericalism, saying that only the roles that the, uh, the ministerial, the sacramental priesthood have are the roles that are valuable. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and so in between there 
is this uh, place that a lot of us are nervous to go. And it's because we don't have really strict understanding or firm boundaries uh, to work within. You know, we, we, we like to say that uh, we want freedom, and yet the greatest freedom comes when we know where the lines of demarcation are. And so I, I would assume that part of the work that you're doing with this conference and with the speakers and the theologians that are coming in to participate in this is pushing the edges to find out where these boundaries are, where we fit within uh, lay leadership and lay ecclesial ministry, and how we as the church can be most effective uh, and, and most equipped to live out the gospel in these roles. Yeah, that's exactly right, actually. Um, for one, yeah, that's exactly right. For, for one thing, I think the reaction against clericalism, I'm noticing... Uh, has has um, prompted one kind of reaction that I've seen around, which is to try to um, almost desacralize the clergy. Mm-hmm. So to try to sort of make them like lay people plus, um, who, uh, for example, in one description, lead life-giving liturgy, which, which is true. They, they should. But I can do that. I can lead life-giving liturgy as a layperson. Depends on what liturgy you mean, not the Eucharist. But, right. but the point is, um, it makes it sound like the priest is more like a layperson with a few, added, a few added powers or something. But that also fosters clericalism, because um, if, if a priest doesn't understand kind of the awesomeness of his own position at, in holy orders— then all he has left to lean on is the crutch of clericalism and status. So part of it is coming to a deeper appreciation of the gift of the priesthood, which is, and the other part of this is, which is not at the expense of the gifts of the baptized, but which is intended to foster, precisely to foster them and build them up. And so what I'm trying to feature in the conference is places where this is already happening. I think it's happening a lot. It's just that we don't necessarily notice it, and we don't necessarily attach the word leadership to it or think about it uh, as leadership. There are lay people who have undertaken certain kinds of apostolates of leadership and evangelization, and there are bishops and priests who have worked together with them in order to um, to 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 further their their leadership, you might say, and so you have a very beautiful synergy going in which the, you know, the, the lay people aren't contesting the ways in which um, the bishops have, have doctrinal authority or the ways in which they have um, the authority to celebrate the sacraments. In fact, we're not evangelizing if we lay people, if our evangelization efforts don't ultimately point people back to the church, to the sacramental life of the church. Mm-hmm. So that would be shooting ourselves in the foot if we didn't do that would be shooting ourselves in the foot as um, as those who have the priesthood of the baptized, because we only have that joined to the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And we only have that insofar as we have a Eucharistic church. Right. You know, we we, we have this, this call as disciples, and, and Pope Francis has talked uh, as well as his predecessors about our role as, as missionary disciples, that we start out being formed— uh, we are given certain graces, but then we have this responsibility uh, to be evangelizers. And, and part of this, uh, we have a, a push against it because we have a bad understanding of what evangelization is. Part of it, we we 
either fall to clericalism of saying, well, I, I you know, I'm going to leave that to someone else or, or to the other side where we say, well, um, people are getting in, in my way. Uh, and I think that there is a, a really deep need for us as the church to explore these questions of what does it mean for me as a disciple of Jesus Christ to have, uh, to, to live out the responsibility to live out my baptismal promises in a way that benefits not just my own spiritual life, but benefits the whole church. Absolutely. And I think that the, I think the center of gravity of evangelization has to shift in some ways toward the lay people. I think this is um, Pope Francis's whole idea in Evangelii Gaudium, where he talks about how everyone in the church is called to be a missionary disciple. I love the way he does shift that emphasis and where he kind of doesn't let any of us say, well, it's not a job, that's the job of the priest. Yeah. It is your job. And that can be, and, and what Pope Benedict is saying, and I think Pope Francis is furthering, is you need to take responsibility for that. And on the other hand, priests and bishops have to understand that they have to help lay people take responsibility for that and, and nurture them in that responsibility. We're talking today with Dr. John Cavadini about the upcoming called and co-responsible conference at Notre Dame University. What does lay leadership look like to you? Come and tell me over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. And we'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on daily life. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today about what your job is. We're here in the middle of, uh, of Advent. Tomorrow we celebrate the third Sunday of Advent, and then we have uh, we switch out of the, the eschaton that we've spent the first two weeks on, looking at the final coming of Christ. Now, the next two weeks, we're going to focus on the incarnation. And so as we're looking at God becoming manifest as as man and making himself uh, one of us for the purpose of redeeming us so that we could be in relationship with God the Father. I want to take a look at this idea of incarnation because we now are the body of Christ. We are in a in a certain sense as the church the incarnation of Jesus who makes him manifest to the world today. And so we have a responsibility. We have this prayer that we pray in the Lord's Prayer. He taught us to pray it, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so as we pray that, we're praying that God's kingdom would be made manifest in our lives and in our world in the same way that that is manifest in heaven. So we have a responsibility, even as we pray for that, to help bring it about. And there's a conference coming up at the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame on March 4th through 6th. You can sign up for it by going to mcgrath.nd.edu. Uh, the registration's open until February 24th, called Called and Co-Responsible. What is our role and the responsibility for the leadership of the church? We're talking today with Dr. John Cavadini, who is the director of that fabulous institute there at the uh, uh, beautiful <laughs> Notre Dame. Thank you, Dr. Cavadini, for joining us. Well, thank you, and thank you for your kind words. So let's talk a little bit about now we, we explored the fact that, yes, we do have a responsibility. And in the end of the last segment, you started talking about 
Pope Francis's idea for the laity, uh, specifically expressed through Evangelii Gaudium, uh, that we are responsible not just for operations or day-to-day or, or all the things that we might think of when we think of leadership, but we're responsible for evangelization. So take that, that thread and, and take us down that road a little bit further. Sure. Um, Pope Francis quotes John Paul II in Evangelii Gaudium as saying that evangelization is the first task of the church, and that really goes all the way back to Pope Paul VI, Evangelii Nunziandi. And so to talk about co-responsibility for the mission of the church must mean to talk about co-responsibility for evangelization. And sometimes this is, I think, mistakenly uh, understood that to be that lay people, their role in evangelization is, is limited to, it is this, but, is, but it's not limited to, although it's sometimes, I think, um, construed this way, is limited to social and political action that is advocating for um, for social policies that are more in keeping with the gospel, et cetera. That is part of evangelization, but it's not all of evangelization. And a big part of evangelization is also explicit proclamation of the word. So as to bring it to people who are unchurched or to bring it to people who have fallen away, et cetera, this also is part of taking responsibility for the mission of the church. And you can see that this is what Pope Francis means, even in little ways when he talks about um, the letter to Timothy, where he, he mentions that, um, where uh, Paul mentions that Timothy's Timothy's mother and grandmother had formed him in the faith, Lois and Eunice. And I just find that incredibly empowering to think about the ways, just these kind of ordinary ways in which grandparents can form young people in the faith. Um, that's a form of leadership, but all the way to organizing apostolates. Organizing apostolates, there are some nationwide apostolates of evangelization that are that are that are invented by and led by lay people. They're not at all in conflict with the hierarchy. They're not, but they're not um, they're not projects of the hierarchy. They're truly lay led and lay initiated. It's those kinds of things that I want to highlight at this conference because I think we often get the impression that as lay people, this sort of direct evangelization is not our job, or else we think, well, I can't really do it. I don't really know how to do it. I'm not a theologian. I don't have a PhD, whatever. Um, Pope Francis in Evangelii Gaudium points out you don't need a PhD to do this. Um, That, And in fact, for someone who, who thinks that they can't do it, I think if it's true that evangelization is the first task of the church, then if you take up that first task, you will find your voice because you will find you will find your identity uh, as a member of the church because you're embracing the mission of the church. So you will grow in confidence rather than always feeling like you're fumbling. It's true that you might need some help with answers to certain questions, but that's why there are theologians and others who can help lots of resources. But it doesn't mean it's it's not your responsibility. The main thing is to share that. life that you have with Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And Pope Francis says, we know that life without him is not the same as life with him. And that's what we have to share. Yeah. And Dr. Cavadini, I, 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 looking at this, uh, I think of the, the first apostles. You, you say you don't have to have a PhD. Um, 
the the word that's used in scripture when they looked at the the apostles uh, on the day of Pentecost and said they're unschooled and ordinary, uh, the Greek word there is idiots, right? <laughs> yes. These these people are idiotas. So that this makes no sense that they're speaking with this authority, but they're speaking out of that three-year relationship where they were discipled by Jesus and they walked in relationship with him and they listened to his words and they followed his instruction. And I think that a lot of times we expect that um, evangelization comes down to uh, academic knowledge. I have to have all yeah, the right answers. Exactly. But they didn't have— yeah, I think- the- they they lived it out through their their lived experience of relationship with Christ, not through some uh, course of study that they followed. Right, and I think that you know Pope Francis sometimes is criticized. I think for for being anti doctrinal or something like that. I don't think that's the point at all. I think what he's trying to say is you can't you can't let the fact that you don't have a PhD in Christian doctrine keep you from the fundamental Christian task of evangelizing, which is not in the first instance making fine doctrinal distinctions. In the first instance, it's sharing the encounter with Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. But it does imply, then, that you're able, either able to point them to somebody or to some resource where these finer distinctions are made in support of this primary ev- evangelization. Speaking of some resource, if you go to mcgrath.nd.edu, you will find a treasure trove of resources from theologians who can help you process some of those difficult questions. Uh, and really, it comes down to, I think, of um, the, the, the book, The Introduction to the Devout Life by St. Fran- uh, Francis de Sales. And yeah. he, he talks about the fact that not all of us are called to be bishops or cloistered, uh, and then we have to live out our devotion within our own context. And so flipping that around to this question of of evangelization, there are people who would never listen to a PhD, uh, but they would listen to someone who can <laughs> identify with them and, and who can share their experience and give empathy and, and certain uh, connection to them uh, because of the lived experience of life in Christ. And so sure. we— we each have our roles. Going back to the question of zero sum game, we each have our roles and our partition to our uh, our part to play in participation of the body of Christ. Uh, that that we are co-responsible uh, for the life of the church and can benefit from one another at the same time. And that, what I want to add to that is that this is genuine leadership. This isn't just some rearguard action in you know in, in the in, in the background. It's genuine leadership to do this. And it's, it's appropriate leadership for lay people. Mm-hmm. Well, I like to point out a lot of times we think of leadership in the church as being some role within the liturgy during the mass uh, at, on Sunday morning. And, and frankly, there's, there's a finite number of things that can be done in the liturgy and mm-hmm. they don't all belong. They're not all proper to the laity. And so really, I think we have to get our minds out of leadership as being somehow central to liturgy uh, and look at all of the various ways where church exists, right? The church, yes, does exist in the liturgy and does exist uh, in the hierarchy, but the church is also the entire body of Christ and the body of Christ living out the mission to bring God's kingdom to to earth. Yes. I think of Dorothy Day. For example, um, I can't think of a of a more a, a better example of lay leadership in the church. She, um, you know, she engaged in certainly in direct social action, 
But it wasn't only that. If you read her books like Loaves and Fishes, Loaves and Fishes, to me, I've come to see it as a kind of Eucharistic classic. I got such a deeper appreciation for the Eucharist from reading that book, and by the way, for the priesthood, um, so that she's, you can't peg her as just somebody who does social work, a kind of social work, or even a radical kind of social work. She's someone who, who, taught, the doc, who taught the gospel to people, who helped them understand it. She was an evangelizer in that sense. And if that's not leadership, I don't know what is. But we're not used to using the word leadership in association with that activity. And therefore, we tend to restrict the word in such a way that I think lay people don't feel any call to it. And the hierarchy doesn't, um, doesn't understand or doesn't see the, the full range of the meaning of that word for the church. You brought up something earlier that, that I think is important as well. Um, as we think about leadership in the church— we don't think about the work that we do within our own homes in passing on the faith as being yeah, church leadership. That's a big one. Uh, and, and yet, I, according to your assertion, it, it's a, one of the primary ways that we can lead in the church. Absolutely. I think this is something our society is sort of losing um, the idea of parents as leaders. I mean, par- parenting is a form of leadership. And I think sometimes of, of college education nowadays and most colleges, I think, well, of course, they're they're preparing students for a career, but because they're doing that, it seems as though we're also teaching that that's the only form of leadership, this kind of social leadership being a leadership in business or in other realms, when in fact, one of the primary forms of leadership that most people are going to um, to exhibit is parenting, and they don't even remember that that's, that's leadership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, we, we don't get formed for it. We don't. We don't get formed for it. And we, with the number of people who come from broken homes who don't even have a, a picture of what that looks like uh, to to properly form a family, uh, we we bring such brokenness with us. And I don't think that very often we take the time to give that brokenness to God and to really give ourselves the opportunity to heal and to learn and to grow underneath someone else's tutelage. Uh, whether that be someone in your own parish who you recognize as being good at that and saying, uh, you know, help me process through this because I want to I want to lead like you lead. Uh, but we need to do something within our uh, our context to begin really to look at what it means to be a leader in our homes. Absolutely. Maybe that I agree be, with that. Maybe that could be the next conference. <laughs> I would love that to be the next conference, actually, because I think we're 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 entering. I mean, the, one of the biggest crises of our times is the crisis of the family, and I think I think that's because somehow one reason is that somehow we've 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 kind of just at parents have been almost um, sidestepped in society rather than being taught and formed, you know, to be re- the real leaders that they are. We're talking today with Dr. John Cavadini from the McGrath Institute for Church Life over at the University of Notre Dame. Find out more about them at mcgrath.nd.edu. While you're there, check out the Church Life Journal, churchlifejournal.nd.edu. Dr. Cavadini, thank you for being a part of the show today. Thank you very much. When we come back, we're going to take a look at our reading from Scripture and from Church History, a beautiful reading by St. Peter Chrysologus, one of my favorites. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. And today we talked with Dr. John Cavadini, who is the director of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, if you listen to this show for any length of time, you know that I really love the work they're doing there. Uh, go take a look at them over at mcgrath.nd.edu or at the churchlifejournal.nd.edu and see the good work that they're doing there. If you missed any part of the show or you want to share it with your friends, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at outsidethewalls.com, and today's is no exception. It'll be right there at the top of the page just about as soon as the broadcast ends. Now, at the end of the last segment, Dr. Cavadini talked just a little bit about the role of parents as teaching their children, being a role of leadership in the church. And I brought to mind this tweet that I came across, uh, gosh, on on the feast day of Our Lady of Guadalupe last Thursday, uh, from J.D. Flynn. And J.D. is the editor-in-chief of Catholic News Agency. He's a canon lawyer. Started out in Lincoln. I actually uh, knew about him and, and heard about him back when he was working at the uh, the diocese there in Lincoln from a couple of, of mutual friends. Never got the opportunity to meet him, and now, of course, he's he's huge as uh, the editor-in-chief there at Catholic News Agency. Uh, prolific tweeter. Love the stuff he's got there. If you don't follow him and you're on Twitter, uh, you ought to go take a look and see what he's got there, at J.D. Flynn, F-L-Y-N-N. Uh, but he, he posted this last Thursday. He said, Forming our children to be saints means teaching them to pray. It also means teaching them to live in providence and radical charity, to orient their lives to apostolate, proclaiming the gospel and loving the poor. Saints transformed by love transform the world by love. And then he continues, says, and obviously that means learning that stuff myself. And man, let me tell you, I as a parent, I feel that. There is something about teaching our children to live in holiness and to live out the faith that opens that reality up to us a little bit more fully. And so Dr. Cavadini and I actually continued on that trajectory and talked a little bit more about what it means for parents uh, in teaching their children in the faith to be leaders in the church. And that's available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. So while you're there at OutsideTheWalls.com, sharing this week's episode with your friends on social media go ahead and click on the link in the top right-hand corner that says support the show hyphen Patreon. Take a look at all the different ways you can support the show and see that for as little as $5 a month, you can get access to weekly extra segments, including the one from today. I encourage you to take it, think about it, and maybe that's something you want to give to yourself this Christmas. Access to all the extra segments with all our guests. Uh, If so, make this the week that you become part of that Patreon community. Now let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. Our reading from Scripture comes from the book of Isaiah. The desert and the parched land will exult. The steppe will rejoice and bloom. They will bloom with abundant flowers and rejoice with joyful song. The glory of Lebanon will be given to them, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord the splendor of our God. Strengthen the hands that are feeble. Make firm the knees that are weak. Say to those whose hearts are frightened, Be strong, fear not, here is your God. 
He comes with vindication, with divine recompense. He comes to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf be cleared. Then the lame will leap like a stag. Then the tongue of the mute will sing. Those whom the Lord has ransomed will return and enter Zion singing, crowned with everlasting joy. They will meet with joy and gladness, sorrow and mourning will flee. That reading comes from the book of Isaiah. And as I look at this in light of Advent and in light of our mission as lay people to be leaders in the church in the proclamation of the gospel, I see this as just a joyful promise. But in the middle of all this, in the middle of all the promises and the joy and the, the, the desert being turned in, to blooms, there is a command. You and I are given an instruction to strengthen the hands that are feeble and make firm the knees that are weak and to say to those whose hearts are frightened, be strong, fear not. Here is your God, and he comes with vindication and divine recompense. He comes to save you. This is the kerygma. This is going out and proclaiming the good news that God loves you wants to be in relationship with you, and has come to redeem you. This is our responsibility as disciples of Jesus Christ, uh, to be lay missionaries, right? This is not something that is reserved to, um, to religious orders. It's not something that is reserved to holy orders. It's something that is given to all of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ. Our job is to strengthen those that are weak, and to proclaim that God is coming to save them, that God is God with us, and he wants to be with them on an ongoing basis. This is our responsibility. Our reading from church history today comes from a reading from a sermon by St. Peter Chrysologus, and it's all about how when we understand God's love for us and respond to God in love, the desire is for us to see him. Our, our love draws us to want to see our beloved. When God saw the world falling into ruin because of fear, he immediately acted to call it back to himself with love. He invited it by his grace, preserved it by his love, and embraced it with compassion. When the earth had become hardened in evil, God sent the flood, both to punish and to release it. He called Noah to be the father of a new era, urged him with kind words, and showed that he trusted him. He gave him fatherly instruction about the present calamity, and through his grace consoled him with hope for the future. But God did not merely issue commands— Rather, with Noah sharing the work, he filled the ark with the future seed of the whole world. The sense of a loving fellowship thus engendered removed servile fear, and a mutual love could continue to preserve what shared labor had affected. God called Abraham out of the heathen world, symbolically lengthened his name, and made him the father of all believers. God walked with him on his journeys, protected him in foreign lands, enriched him with earthly possessions, and honored him with victories. He made a covenant with him, 
saved him from harm, accepted his hospitality, and astonished him by giving him the offspring he had despaired of. Favored with so many graces and drawn by such great sweetness of divine love, Abraham was to learn to love God rather than fear him, and love rather than fear was to inspire his worship. God comforted Jacob by a dream during his flight, roused him to combat upon his return, and encircled him with a wrestler's embrace to teach him not to be afraid of the author of the conflict, but to love him. God called Moses as a father would, and with fatherly affection invited him to become the liberator of his people. In all the events we have recalled, the flame of divine love enkindled human hearts and its intoxication overflowed into men's senses. Wounded by love, they longed to look upon God with their bodily eyes. Yet how could our narrow human vision apprehend God, whom the whole world cannot contain? But the law of love is not concerned with what will be, what ought to be, what can be. Love does not reflect. It is unreasonable and knows no moderation. Love refuses to be consoled when its goal proves impossible, despises all hindrances to the attainment of its object. Love destroys the lover if he cannot obtain what he loves. Love follows its own promptings and does not think of right and wrong. Love inflames desire, which impels it towards things that are forbidden. But why continue? It is intolerable for love not to see the object of its longing. That is why whatever reward they merited was nothing to the saints if they could not see the Lord. A love that desires to see God may not have reasonableness on its side, but it is the evidence of filial love. If God gave Moses the temerity to say, if I have found favor in your eyes, show me your face. It inspired the psalmist to make the same prayer. Show me your face. Even the pagans made their images for this purpose. They wanted to actually see what they mistakenly revered. That reading comes from a homily, a sermon by St. Peter Chrysologus, and it sums up our desire to see the face of God. We see him in the crucifix at Mass. We see him in the creche as we get closer to Christmas and we put him in the manger. We adore the face of God, and specifically so when he comes to meet us in the Eucharist, to gaze on him in his beauty, to see the face of our beloved. Today's show is brought to you by Drs. Michael and Julie Highland and all those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link, and join their numbers. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.